So like Wade mentioned, I know that this week between uh, New Year's and Christmas, or sorry, Christmas and New Year's is a little bit of kind of like a no man's land. It's really easy to even like forget what day it is, especially if you took time off of work. Um, it's all gets kind of fuzzy and gray. I got a text from a coworker actually, and he had forgotten totally which day it was. Um, I had done the same thing earlier in the week. So it's like things happen and it's also a very busy time of year because you just had Christmas, you have New Year's coming up, lots of parties and events and things going on. And I think it's in light of all that appropriate that the content at least of this week like the overall content of these chapters that we're looking at is actually basically a repeat of the chapters before so i'm not too sorry for that um, and it's also going to be framed differently so there is new stuff and we will get to that uh, but i think the repetition is probably good because a lot of us let's be honest probably have forgotten most of what was said last time Probably the, the gist of what we remember is that there's the promise of the Messiah, the Emmanuel, so Jesus Christ, the warm, fuzzy feelings of Christmas. So we're going to repeat a lot of the same stuff and build on that theme even more as we look at this text today. And the text we will be looking at is 9-8, so immediately after the um, section of the For Unto Us a Child is Born section in 9-1-7 that we had ended with last week. We're going to be looking at 9-8 through 12-6. And last week, we had looked at 7-1 through 9-7. And we saw in these chapters the prophecies of Emmanuel and of Isaiah's sons that are really fun to say, their names, uh, Sher, Jashub, and Mer, Shalel, Hashbaz. So if you're looking for names to for suggestions for anybody, there you go. Um, the promises through these names of Emmanuel, God with us, share uh, Jashub, a remnant will return, Merishalel Hashbash, that's a tongue twister. Um, that one is the, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Um, so the promises given through those are that the threat of Syria and Israel, which, as we talked about last week, um, they were basically forming an alliance to try to pressure Judah into their alliance with them against Assyria. Um, that threat to Judah was not going to last long due to God's judgment of Israel for their rebellion that had been going on for a while. And also contained in the promises of those names was a promise that Judah would face judgment from Assyria, but that it would not be total destruction. Some of the phrasing that was used there is like the the water will come up to the neck, but it won't it won't completely drown. It'll come up to the neck because God will bring judgment on Judah for the choices that Ahaz and they are making, but it won't be total destruction. For God is with them, or Emmanuel, God is with them and would preserve a remnant, share Jashub. So you have these promises interwoven into these names. Um, the ten northern tribes, something we had talked about last week, the ten northern tribes of Israel had long rebelled against God and were about to be punished and face destruction and exile. Judah, however, as we've seen in the choices of Ahaz, his rejection of God's word, Judah is headed in the same direction. So when we read these promises to, uh, that regard what's going to happen to Israel and to Syria, what we need to read these and remember is that Isaiah is primarily talking to Judah. So when he's giving promises about the destruction of Israel for the choices that Israel's making, and he knows that Judah is making similar choices, what do you think is the implicit warning in the messages about Israel to Judah? If you're heading in the same direction, guess what's going to happen to you? And we've seen that again and again in these messages. 
So in chapters 7, 1 through 9, 7, um, we saw this message being given, that Israel was going to be destroyed, this threat was going to be gone, but then Judah was also going to face some punishment. And then at the end of it, um, that section ended with a promise of a greater son of David, a greater Emmanuel, if you will, who would rule forever in righteousness and in justice and bring peace. We read that he would be a light to the nations, that even the two most northern tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, who due to their position on the very north had borne the brunt of all the invasions coming in and out of the land over time. And he's not just talking about Assyria. Like they've, historically, they've always borne the brunt just due to the fact that they're on the north. And what he says in this promise of this, this future son that will be a ruler of peace is that he's going to turn that situation on its head and rather than bearing the brunt of invasions, they are going to be the welcome gate of nations flooding into the light of the Lord. So you have this beautiful promise of a reversal of what's been going on. This week in 9, 8 through 12, 6, we are going to again read about God's just judgment of Israel and also how he will use Assyria to punish them as well as Judah to the extent that he allows. But a couple new things are going to happen in this section as well. We are going to, going to read about God's response to and judgment of Assyria, which is something that we didn't really see in the last section. And we are also going to see the promise of the Messiah as it continues to develop, and we will learn more about what he is going to accomplish. So you're going to see another Messiah section in this um, section here, these, these two chapters, and it's going to be a little bit longer, and it's going to contain a little bit new material of what he's going to accomplish. 9, 8 through 12, 6 is framed more theologically than the previous two chapters. You had a lot of names and things you had to keep track of. You are going to see a lot of names in these two chapters, and I'll try to explain what's going on as we're going. But by and large, these chapters that are fairly a repeat of the material that came before are going to be more of a theological viewpoint repeat. In these chapters, we're going to see the curtain pulled back a little bit more to see what's going on behind the scenes. Um, in 7.1 through 9.8, so again, last week's section, we had learned that Israel's plans against Judah will fail. What these chapters that we're going to look at these, this week seek to answer is the question, why did Israel and the alliance with Syria, why did those plans fail against Judah? Did those plans fail because Ahaz was crafty and made an alliance with Assyria, and then Assyria, being the superpower, came in and wiped out and took away the threat? Is that why the threat of Israel went away? At face value? Yes. But in reality, what these chapters are going to tell us is there's actually more going on than that. Assyria is the hand by which that judgment came, but we're going to find out who's the hand behind Assyria. So in 9, 8 through 12, 6, like I said earlier, the curtain is going to be pulled back and we are going to be reminded who the real king is. Assyria may be powerful, but the true king and judge is the Lord, not any earthly empire or power. As we open into this section here, beginning in 9.8, this theme, this pulling back of the curtain to reveal the true king and judge is going to hit us squarely or hit the reader squarely in the face right at the opening here. This point is made clear as 9.8 opens. 9.8 opens, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. 9.8 opens with the fall of a gavel. Judgment has come. 
And notice how that judgment is not coming from Assyria. Yes, Assyria will be the one that will come and take care of this threat that is facing Judah. But now it says, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. As we, as we continue through these verses, in, nine, in verses 9 and 10, we are going to see why this judgment has fallen. Starting again in verse 8, The Lord has sent word against Jacob and will fall on Israel. All the people will know. Ephraim, which is another way of referring to Israel and the northern tribes, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, the capital city, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin, or their ally, Syria, against him, or against Israel, and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth, for all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So this is the first stanza of what we're going to see as four stanzas of judgment against Israel. In this first stanza, we read that the reason that this judgment is falling on Israel is that they have become prideful and arrogant. They think themselves self-sufficient and able to recover from any loss on their own strength. That's what's going on in that wording there. The bricks have fallen in ten, but we will rebuild with dress stones. The sycamores have been put down, but we will put cedars in their place. What's going on is, oh, these mud brick, mud brick buildings have fallen down, but we're going to put even fancier artistic buildings in their place. These sycamores have fallen down or been felled down, but we're going to put taller cedars in their place. It's like we are basically invincible. We're able to recover from any loss. We are self-sufficient is the mindset that's being portrayed by this quote um, from Israel. But what God says is that he will send their enemies against them. And what's ironic here is, remember the historical context here? Like Israel has formed an alliance with Syria against Judah. But who is one of the nations that it says will actually devour Israel? We read that the Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. I think there's a purposeful um, irony being used here by Isaiah. Like, you think that you're in alliance with Syria, but that alliance is actually going to turn into a source of your own destruction, which is exactly what we see as the events play out in history, is that that alliance did not end well for Israel because Assyria came in and wiped them out. And then we see an interesting phrase here at the end of this stanza. And then if you look forward, it's not just here. So if you look at 9.12, and then 9.17 at the end, and then 9.21 at the end, and 10.4 at the end. You're going to see the same exact two lines every single time. Each of these stanzas ends with, For all of this, his anger has not turned away, his being the Lord's, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The attack of Assyria against Israel and Syria is not the end. More judgment is coming. His hand is stretched out still. We know from history that Israel did suffer this loss. They had allied with Syria. Assyria came in and took care of that threat. But that wasn't the end. Their capital city was finally destroyed in 722 after it had already been at that point. Basically, Assyria just took more and more and more of their land until the capital city was wiped out and conquered and people deported in 722. And then there was a final major deportation in 670. The judgment of the Lord kept coming down against the northern tribes. 
that his hand is stretched out still refers to this continued destruction. But also remember who Isaiah is talking to. His message is not primarily to the northern tribes. His message is primarily to Judah. So as Judah reads... For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. You think there might be a little bit of an ominous note of warning to Judah there as well? That the hand of the Lord is still stretched out, even after he has judged their northern neighbors, who have made choices that Ahaz and the people are starting to basically duplicate? I think there's a note of warning as well in that choice of wording. Pay attention, by the way to this language about the hand of the Lord. We are, throughout this whole section, we are going to see this as a major theme, the hand of the Lord, or my hand has done this. We're going to see different people using this phrase. Just like in last week, how that section was kind of the, the thread that held it all together was sun imagery, a promised sun. In this section, the thread that kind of holds this whole section together is my hand or the hand of the Lord. There's a lot of hand, which represents power and ability and might and rule. Um, that, that phrase is going to show up a lot in this section. The hand of the Lord being stretched out is also a phrase that we don't just see here in the Bible. This is a phrase that would purposely bring an image to mind, to the reader and to the hearer. It is an image of great acts of divine judgment and deliverance. We see this phrase used many times, and in fact I read many sections about this last year when we talked about Exodus. There was a great act of divine judgment, many acts of divine judgment in Exodus, And in pretty much all of those acts of divine judgment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, you read, it said, the hand of the Lord was stretched out, or he asks Moses or Aaron to stretch out your hand. But then he also uses the same phrase to deliver the people. What does he ask Moses to do over the Red Sea? Stretch out your hand. This phrase is most often used throughout scripture for direct divine action and assistance in judgment, but also in deliverance. We're actually going to see both as we go through these chapters. So keep this phrase in mind and watch what the imagery is doing. And also keep that uh, Exodus connection in mind. We're going to get back there too. So as we look again, um, kind of, I'm going to zoom back out a little bit to this section here. As we look at 9.8 through 10.4, which is the section of judgment on the arrogance and oppression of Israel, and basically the gavel has been struck, judgment has come down, and these four stanzas are laying out why his judgment is just, is what's going on in these stanzas. And in stanza one, as we just read, we saw that it was because of the arrogance and pride of the people. That's in 9, 8 through 12. In 9, 13 through 17, in stanza two, we read that the entire society has become godless and full of evil. The leaders are leading people astray, And we even read that the fatherless and the widows, who are usually defended by God, we read that even this corruption and this wicked choice and this this godless lifestyle has filtered down even all the way to those whom God usually defends. The entire society has become corrupt. Yes, the leaders are held accountable, but even those who are being led are being held accountable as well because they have chosen to go the way of the leaders and become corrupt themselves. And then in stanza three, we see that the wickedness, the hatred, and the backbiting and lack of brotherly love seen in the people is put in graphic language. Um, as, as you look at verse 18 here, 918, for wickedness burns like a fire, 
It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. And the people, the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. The imagery going on here is this, this wickedness and this evil and this lack of love in the land is burning up the land. The column of smoke is rising because of the destruction that it is causing. And the people themselves are the fuel for the fire. Because they are creating the wickedness and the evil and the hatred and the backbiting. They are devouring themselves. And then it changes from fire imagery to siege and cannibalism imagery. It it gets graphic as it describes this destruction that the people are causing to each other. You read in uh, verse, starting in 19, again, through the wrath of the Lord, the land is scorched, the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. That no one spares another kind of serves as a hinge here into the, into the siege or cannibalism language. They slice meat on the right but are still hungry. They devour on the left but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. And together they are against Judah. For all of this, the anger of the Lord has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people themselves are the fuel for this fire. They devour each other. What's going on at the end here, these these nations being referred to by their tribal leaders, what, what is essentially being said here is this is brother against brother, friend against friend. Brothers are backbiting and attacking brothers, and they're forming alliances, not against their enemies, but against each other. There's so much infighting going on. The nation is devouring itself. And then you get to 10, 1 through 4. In the fourth and final stanza, the leaders are again judged for their injustice and oppression. Starting in 10, 1, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. They are writing laws that purposely harm the poor and the needy and give advantage to themselves. They turn aside the needy from justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights. The widows are their spoil and that they, and they make the fatherless their prey. There's this judgment here on the wickedness and how the leaders are showing partiality and writing laws that help themselves. And you see these words here, this the spoil and the prey. God turns the tables on them in three through four in, in really a dark irony. He really flips the script on them. And he asks them, what will you do on the day of punishment in the rune that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners and fall among the slain. What he has just done here is the people who are spoiling others will themselves be spoiled. That's what happens when you're a prisoner. Everything is taken away from you. And then those who are preying on others themselves become prey. They fall among the slain. Isaiah, God through Isaiah, And this dark irony completely flips it and says, what you have done to others will be done to you in judgment. One commentator summarizes these stanzas really well and also shows how they transition into the next section as well. He says, so, for all these offenses against God, for pride, for false leadership, for devouring one's own brothers, for oppression of the poor, the divine hand is outstretched. It is not Assyria's overwhelming power which dictates the future of Ephraim or Israel and Judah. It is their failure to submit to God 
and live in accordance with his principles. It is that failure which will destroy them. God is with us, for good or ill. You see God present in these stanzas, but he is present in judgment. God is with us for good or ill. The Assyrias of the world do not hold the balances. God does. And the Assyrias are weighed with the rest of us. And that thought transitions into the next section as we start in 10.5. For we've just seen that Israel is held accountable and judged. And now what we're going to see here as we transition into 10.5, is that Assyria does not escape this judgment, even though they are the very ones who bring the judgment. 10.5 through 19 answers the question of the historical cynic. Isn't God just claiming credit for something that the Assyrians did? Isn't Assyria the real God here bringing the judgment? They're the ones that do all this, and then God just steps in after the fact and says, well, see, judgment came to Israel for what they did. 10, 5 through 19 also answers the question of the theological cynic. How can God use a wicked empire to punish his own people? Shouldn't the wicked empire be punished as well? And this section also answers the question of the ancient cynic. We've talked about this before with geographical theology. The ancient mind would say that the God of the victor is the supreme God. In ancient warfare, what was understood is that if you won your God won, and that the God of the place that you conquered was worthless or had abandoned his people. Your God is the supreme God if you are the victor. And what's interesting here is that all three of these questions, the historical cynic, the theological cynic, and the ancient cynic, all three of them are answered in this very first phrase that is then explained as it keeps going. The very first phrase says, Woe to Assyria. Woe to Assyria. The Lord is the, the real, the supreme God, and he will hold Assyria accountable. In 5 through 6, he explains that he is using them as a rod and a staff of his anger on his people who have rejected him. As you read here in 10, 5 through 6, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff. The staff in their hands is my fury against a godless nation, which, by the way, refers to his people, Israel. Against a godless nation I send them, and against the people of my wrath I command them to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. And then we read something interesting in 10.7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off a nation's not a few. In this verse, we see that Assyria doesn't even realize that they're being allowed to do this as an act of judgment that God is bringing. They simply want to conquer. It's what they want to do. They give no thought to God, even though he is the one allowing them to do this. We read back in two, chapter 2, verse 22, that God gives us our very breath. There is no acknowledgement, though, of God in what Assyria is doing. Assyria simply wants to conquer, and God is using this desire to conquer to accomplish his purpose. But Assyria will be held accountable for the fact that they have no regard for God, even as they are used as his tool. In 8 through 11, verses 8 through 11, we read that he, or Assyria, 
He is arrogant and believes that he can conquer whatever he has the mind to. What's interesting here is we, we know fairly well the specific time period that Isaiah is referring to, at least as we started back in chapter 7 and this threat of Israel and Assyria, or sorry, Israel and Syria coming to try to force Judah into this alliance. But what's interesting is we know the king of Assyria from that time period, but as you read 8 through 11, it's simply he. The king of Assyria is simply referred to as he. I think that's on purpose. Because this isn't just a reference to simply one historical time, time point. This is a reference to the entire empire of Assyria and everything that they accomplish. And we also see that the cities in verses 9 through 11, those are actually the conquests of four different Assyrian kings. So this is a statement that applies to all of time, all of the Assyrian empire and all of their conquests. Each pair of conquered cities also moves geographically closer to Jerusalem. And that is why at 11 you read, Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols, as I have done to Samaria and her images? Basically what you read through this this statement here from the, the leaders of Assyria is I have conquered my way all the way to Jerusalem. I have taken down all of these idols and proven them, in my mind at least, to be false gods and that my, myself and our gods are the greatest. And am I not going to do the same thing to Jerusalem? Cannot my might do this? The answer to this question is given right away in verse 12. It says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion, all his work of judgment, that again is coming on Judah up to the neck, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. The Lord will allow them to bring trouble to Jerusalem. Assyria thinks that he'll be able to conquer Jerusalem, though. But God says he will only allow them to punish and trouble Jerusalem to the extent that he allows them to do so. Once God determines the judgment is enough, he will then turn and bring his judgment down on Assyria. The very reason for the judgment of God on his people, in fact, is the very reason for judgment that will come down on Assyria. Pride, arrogance, and rejection of God. The same exact script, the same exact reason for judgment on Israel is the same exact reason why the empire of Assyria will be judged as well. In 13 to 14, we read that Assyria believes it is their own power, their own hand. Remember that phrase from earlier? By the strength, this is Assyria talking, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. It wasn't there a king in the book of Daniel who said something similar, that God had to knock down a few pegs as well? Assyria is again going to be judged for their pride and their arrogance. They believe it's their hand. The king believes it's his hand, his power, that has accomplished these victories. And you combine this with that quote that they were saying from 9 through 11. Basically, Assyria believes it is their power that will conquer Jerusalem. Their hand will do this. God answers, starting at 15, in mocking irony. There's a lot of irony in the book of Isaiah, by the way. In mocking irony... God starts in 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. 
God in mocking irony reminds them that they may have power, but it is power not under their own control. Assyria may be the physical hand of judgment against Israel and Judah, but it is only because they are being used by the hand of the Lord that is stretched out in judgment currently on his people. The same hand that stretched out in judgment against his people will turn and stretch out in judgment against them. And they will realize that their hand is not as big as his hand. In verses 16 through 19, we read a description of this coming judgment. Therefore, the Lord of hosts will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory, a burning will be kindled. If you're worried about that, or um, if you're confused about that weird saying right there, under his glory, a burning will be kindled. The glory was a way of referring to the king, like the glory of the empire, the king of the empire, his, his might and his power. Under his glory, under the king, a burning will be kindled. What was a common funeral type of that time was the funeral pyre. What God is basically saying is, I'm going to light a funeral pyre under you. You're going to have a loss so great that it will be like death. The light of Israel will become a fire, and the Holy One a flame, and it will burn and devour. Who's the light of Israel? Who's the Holy One? Jesus, God. Um, what, what's interesting also here historically is that the king of Assyria tended, they tended to refer to themselves as the light of their people. So God actually, and ironically again, takes a phrase that they claim and he says, the light of Israel. I will be a light. You say you're a light. I'm going to become a bigger one and a more destructive one and burn you. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body and will be as when a sick man wastes away. And the remnant of the trees of the forest will be so few that as if a child can write them down. The, the wrath of the Lord that we read in chapter 9, verse 19, that scorched the land of his people, the scorched land of Israel, is going to turn and scorch Assyria. The destruction will be so great that a little child can go and count those who remain. We will see this destruction and this judgment later in the judgment of God on the Assyrian army that delivers them, delivers Jerusalem from a siege in chapter 37. And as the prophecy here looks forward to that day, which again we won't get to until chapter 37, but as it looks forward to that day, we transition into chapter 10 starting in verse 20, this promise of a remnant that will return. On that day, so on this day of deliverance from Assyria, when judgment turns from judgment on God's people to judgment on the Assyrian Empire, on that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. Which is a reference to the fact that they have been, Judah has been having an alliance with Assyria, who ends up being the very power that turns on Judah, as we'll read about later. Um, They will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One, of Israel in truth, which I, lo- I love the, the, the saying there, in truth, being thrown at the, on at the end. Because remember back in chapter 1, how it said that they were doing the acts of worship, but their heart wasn't in it at all. They were doing all the sacrifices, they were doing all the ceremonies, but they were living and their faith and allegiance was in complete opposition to God. So then you have here in chapter 10, I think a reference and a kind of a hearkening back to this, and it says, They will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One, in truth. 
they're actually going to start worshiping me now. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. I think what's going on here is an attack on a false claim that some of the people of Israel had made. This phrase here, for though your people, Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. It seems that from, um, I think later in the book of Isaiah, but also just from elsewhere as well, it seems that people in Israel and Judah were using the promise to Abraham that the descendants would be as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the skies. They're using that promise to say that God will never bring judgment against us. We're supposed to be a multitude. God will never wipe us out. God will never thin us out. God will never bring a major act of destruction and judgment on us, so we can basically live how we want. And God is directly attacking that false view of what his promise means. He will keep his promise. He will keep a people, and he will cause the people to multiply, but he will also bring judgment and destruction on those who think that they can take that as a get-out-of-jail-free card and live however they want. You will also notice something interesting in the phrasing that's happening here. In verse 20 and in 21, you see something that ha- has happened a few times in Isaiah, but is definitely more rare as you, as you look into the prophecies. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. And then skipping 21, a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob. We keep mentioning Jacob. Is there something significant with that? We've seen this a few times in Isaiah. In 2.3, it is used in the vision of the restored, elevated Jerusalem. And then in 2.5, it is used in a call to the people to come back and walk in the light of the Lord. And then in 2.6, 8.17, and then in 9.8, at the very beginning, the first verse of this week, it is used in God's rejection and judgment of his people. And if you combine all those, the 2.6, and 9.8, it is used in judgment of both Israel and Judah. And then here in 10.20-21, to 21, it is a statement that the remnant of Jacob, who in this context are currently represented by Judah, they will return to the Lord. But what is, I think, entirely on purpose here is that Jacob brings to mind the 12 sons, all the tribes. I think Isaiah is purposely making a point here that God has not forgotten the ten tribes. Even though he's bringing judgment against them, these promises don't just refer to Judah. God has a plan for all people. Jacob brings to mind all all the twelve sons, all twelve tribes, all of God's people. It is a foreshadowing of the fact that though God's people seem to be narrowing down and down and down, that that is not how the fulfillment of the promise is going to work. It is going to explode back out. The, the word is on purpose to prepare us for what we are about to read in the next chapter. The immediate context of this deliverance and restoration in Judah um, being delivered by Assyria, that is the immediate context. But Isaiah is constantly pointing to the future, to a greater deliverance and a greater restoration. Getting back to this uh, text here, though, starting in 24, it says, Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians 
when they strike you with a rod and lift up their staff against you, as the Egyptians did. In 25 through 27, the next few verses, God promises that his anger, which in this context is anger against Judah, his anger will come to an end and it will turn against Assyria. He will strike Assyria as when he struck Midian. We read starting in 25, For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. The Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. If you don't remember what that is, do you remember the story of Gideon? Do you remember a little tiny, teeny, tiny, tiny army of 300 people to make the point that it was God fighting for his people and not the people bringing their own victory? That, that's what's being referred to here. So an act of deliverance through God's might. The Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. So through two historical occurrences, God is basically saying I will do an act of deliverance that will not be your might. It will be my might. And I will do an act of deliverance, an exodus, that will feel like Egypt. And your exodus out of Egypt. In that day, his burden, Judah, or his people, will depart from your, sorry, the burden that Assyria is bringing will depart from your shoulder and the yoke of Assyria from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. So we read here that this act of deliverance and this act of destruction brought on the enemies of God's people will be as Midian and as Egypt. Their burden will be lifted and their yoke broken. And then in 28 to 34, we read this promise um, put into terms of an advancing army, which if you're not looking at a map and have no idea where the places are, are don't feel bad, I had no idea where they were either until I looked at a map and read some commentaries. Um, th- what's going on in the imagery of 28 through 32 is basically it's a hypothetical army like saying like if when Assyria comes they could go down this path and it's just a series of cities advancing to Jerusalem and in the repeated kind of drumbeat city after city they're fleeing the the cities are crying out loud in fear it's like this invincible army is just rampaging through all the way to Jerusalem this um This series of cities here ends in 32. This very day he will halt at Nob, which is close to Jerusalem, and he will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. What what is being said is that the Assyrian army will come and conquer and continue to get closer to Jerusalem. They will get close enough to shake their fist at your city. They will come to the very gates, if you will, of Jerusalem. But, but, we read in 33 and 34, Behold, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of armies. The Assyrian army has come and is shaking their fist at Jerusalem, but behold the Lord of armies. He will lop the bows with terrifying power. Great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Wait, I thought Assyria was the axe. That's the point. They may be the axe that God is using currently. They think themselves powerful, but he has the ability to wield his own axe that is much bigger and stronger than theirs. And he will judge them, for he is the Lord of armies greater than any army that they can ever conjure. And then I love how Isaiah is just so good at using phrases to transition into the next thing that he's talking about. 
Because you read here about the Lord taking an axe and hewing down these trees. When you hew down an, a tree with an axe, what is left? The stump. What do we see in the very first line of 11? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump. Wait, we're not talking about Assyria anymore. The stump of Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Lord will lop down the tall trees of Assyria, and there shall come forth a stump, not of Assyria, not of this great mighty power that thought they'd be able to do whatever they wanted. No, not from those stumps will something come, but from the stump of Jesse. A branch or a shoot or a sprout will come from Jesse's roots, and it will bear fruit. Assyria thinks themselves high and mighty, but they will be lopped down, and it will be the remnant of not them, but God's people, from which one day will come a sprout or a shoot that will bear fruit. This new shoot from the stump and the roots of Jesse will bear fruit and will bring new growth. This shoot, as we read in two, or sorry, 11, 2 to 5, this shoot will be a righteous ruler and judge, filled with the Spirit and the fear of the Lord. He will do what all the rulers of God's people had failed to do before him. As you, as you read through this section, this ruler is perfect. He will be filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will judge with righteousness and impartiality. He will judge the wicked and be clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. As you read 11, 2 through 5, there is nothing in here but perfection. He is what the kings of Israel and Judah were supposed to be. In fact, what the United Kingdom was supposed to be before they split with all of their infighting. He is the perfection that we see if you read Kings and Chronicles, failure, 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 failure. This king will be perfect. And then we read in eleven six through 9 that when this shoot reigns, there will be peace and safety. You see in this section, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, the little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze and the young lion, or sorry, and their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like, like an ox. And the nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put away his, or put his hand in the adder's den. A peaceful animal kingdom is certainly beautiful to imagine. And I think there is much um, that you can think about there. But I think, honestly, that the rest of this chapter here in 11 shows us that the more important point of this chapter is the people. And in fact, if you think about these images being used, wolf, lion, leopard, calf, those actually are historically representative of nations. So there might be a purposeful double play on words here going on. I also think, though, that there is something going on here in 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Something about the lack of animosity between people and snake. I think that one is on purpose. This is a reversal of the curse. Reversal of the fall. And then we read in 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be peace for all the earth. All people will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And I think through the parallelism that's happening here, they should not hurt or destroy for in all my holy mountain for the earth. I think that's purposely equating and saying the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and all of the earth is going to become 
my holy mountain. This will be true everywhere. And then in verse 10, we see that in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the people. Of him shall the nations inquire, his resting place will be glorious. I don't want to dwell too much on this one, but as, as you read that last phrase, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. What previous king does that sound a little bit like? All the nations coming to for inquiring and for advice? Glorious resting place? Solomon. One greater than Solomon is going to come. And then what's interesting here is you have this phrase here that might you might remember from chapter 5. It's, we read, In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. And then you skip to 12. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. If you go back to chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, there's a different signal that we read about. And I think this is a purposeful repetition of the phrase in opposite of it as it was used earlier. In 5.26, we read, and this is the judgment of the people. Chapter 5 is, again, the vineyard had produced the fruit opposite of what God was expecting after he had poured all his love and care into it. We read as part of this judgment, he will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly they speed. And then we have this talk about this superhuman army that comes and conquers and destroys and exiles. But then you flip forward to 11.12. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished from Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So rather than calling all the nations from the ends of the earth to come and conquer and exile, God is calling all of the people from all nations from the ends of the earth to come to gather as his people. It is a complete reversal of the imagery that was used before. And there's also this phrase here that is, again, interesting. This stump of Jesse We read earlier the stump of Jesse and his roots. And then we see here in 10, in in that day, the root of Jesse. Something was going on with Jacob. Is there something going on with Jesse as well? I think there is. This chapter is actually the only place in the Bible that refers to the line of David in this way. I did a search of the whole Bible and just the word Jesse and where else it comes up. Only other references are that David is the son of Jesse, just like a fact or that people are pledging allegiance to David, the son of Jesse, as opposed to this other person who is in leadership. There is no other place where it is used in this way as representative of the line, usually what is said of David. Here it is of Jesse. We're, we're stepping back a little bit. Is that is that on purpose? What's going on there? I think God through Isaiah is making the point that in light of the repeated failures of the line of David, a greater son of Jesse is needed. A greater, a greater David is needed. One who is truly, as we read in 11, 1 through 5, one who is truly after God's own heart. For even the great David failed. Even Solomon failed. Even the next king we're going to see in Isaiah, Hezekiah failed. Uzziah failed. All of them failed. We need a greater David. In fact, the line of David all but fails. The Old Testament ends with no king. And as you open in the New Testament, Herod, whose father was an Edomite, calls himself the king of the Jews, though Rome is really in charge. As one author puts it, Isaiah's use of the root of Jesse expresses the promise of a messianic king who would be born of David's family line, and he does so by focusing Judah's expectation of survival on a sparse, leaderless 
remnant. He takes this hope, this the ruler from the line of David, which brings to mind kingly dominion, um, power. It brings all these like big images to mind. And he takes that. And he said, I'm not going to say that this Messiah will come from the line of David. This Messiah is going to come from the line of Jesse. And I'm going to say that because of what is going to happen to you as a people of God. You will be but a remnant. That glory that you think you're going to keep is gone. The expe- he sets the expectation of survival on a sparse, leaderless remnant. God's judgment was coming on Judah and the nation would be left with nothing but a seemingly lifeless stump. But there would be life yet. The line of David is still there. Joseph, the father of Jesus, was of the line of David. He's not sitting on a throne, though. In fact, when he goes for the census, everywhere is so crowded that he has to stay in where the animals are. The glory of the kingdom is gone. But there would still be life in the stump. God promised to retain a remnant, to carry on his work, and the bloodline of King David. What seemed to be a dead, decaying stump would one day bring forth new life in the Messiah. I think the reference to Jesse rather than David, again, by lowering these expectations of how you envision it, I think this is also a way of foreshadowing that the Messiah would come from humble origins. For Jesse was simply a shepherd, and one of his sons was chosen, not for his looks, not for his strength, not for his power, but for his heart. He was chosen by God. And then what do you think of when you flash forward to Jesus? Joseph was just a carpenter. And we read of Jesus later here in Isaiah 53 that his appearance was nothing that anybody would say anything about. He's rather unremarkable, in fact. You have a lot of purposeful allusions here to how the first David was chosen, purposely foreshadowing how the second David will be, how the greater David will be. And then in verses 11 through 16, we see that when this Messiah reigns, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant. This extending hand language comes up again, but this hand is extended not, not in judgment this time, but in deliverance. The first time was the exodus, but one day there will be an even greater exodus. God will recover all his people, not just from Egypt, but from all the places they are oppressed. That's where you see all these cities here in these last few verses, from all the places they are oppressed. And then as you see in 13, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. Jealousies and hostilities will be gone. Ephraim and Judah, Israel and Judah, will be reunited. God's people, what is being said, God's people will finally live in harmony. Oh, we think about that. Flash forward to today about the hundreds of denominations that we have. That'll be nice. Not only will there be internal peace, as we read in 13, but we re- 14 describes a time of external peace as well. What is described here is when they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines. The shoulder of the Philistines is actually a reference to a specific geographic place on like the flank of the, the area of Philistia. Um, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey. What is happening here? Because it's like, okay, why are we suddenly just like focused on these areas immediately surrounding Israel? I thought we were like grander than that. What's happening is he's purposefully rebuilding the Davidic kingdom. He's using this David language here and saying we need a greater David. And what he's saying is that it'll be as if... David's kingdom has come. There is peace and harmony inside and outside. For David's kingdom was known as a time of peace 
both internally and peace from the surrounding neighbors. But then what's interesting, just as he's done all along, he extends that out further. And it says in 15, the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river, the Euphrates River, with a scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria and the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came out from the land of Egypt. So there won't only be peace from your surrounding neighbors, but I am going to bring you home from everywhere that you are. No power on earth will stop me, for there will be no more threat. As far as you can think, as powerful as a nation as you can think, threat will be gone, and my people will be, will, will be gathered home. And then at the close of this section in chapter 12, we see a response uh, of, of song. It's titled in many Bibles, The Lord is my strength and my song. In response to this promise of a greater exodus, the section closes in a chapter, a short chapter of six verses, of a song of thanksgiving, which I would challenge you, I don't have time to do it right now, but I would challenge you, read this and then go back and read Exodus 15, the song right after the first Exodus. And then read this, and notice how many phrases are almost exactly the same. That's not an accident. After this greater Exodus, there is a song of thanksgiving. This chapter 12 also closes a section, by the way, that started all the way back in chapter 6. 6 through 12 is a section, just like 1 through 5 was a section. One th- or chapter 5, the end of the introduction, had begun with singing. But that singing in chapter 5 had turned into darkness and threat and judgment and a promise of exile. The people had been driven from the land and they would be expelled from God's presence. After this darkness, closing chapter 5, closing the introduction, chapter 6 opened the next section with darkness as well. There was a dying king and a message of judgment that Isaiah was to bring to the people. Chapter 12, at the end of this 6-12 through 12 section, now closes with singing, salvation, and the Holy One of Israel dwelling in their midst. Five had transitioned us into this section with a song that turned into darkness and exile and driven away from the presence of God. And now as we close this section, we have singing again, but joyous singing, as people are brought back into God's presence. Exile is over. We see a reversal of the script here. Six ended with a burnt stump that was the hope of the holy seed. Twelve is a song of thanksgiving for the work accomplished by the shoot from that stump. In 6, Isaiah was forgiven, called into God's presence, and commissioned to spread his word. Now in 12, all God's people are forgiven, gathered into his presence, and told to proclaim his name and deeds. Isaiah Isaiah closes this section, 6 to 12, by basically saying, what happened to me in chapter 6 on my call, what happened to me needs to happen to all of us. And one day it will. My, My one voice proclaiming, His word will turn into an entire redeemed, recovered, reunified community through the work of this shoot from the stump of Jesse, who will bring salvation and an exodus even greater than the one we had from Egypt. That is the message of Isaiah as he closes this section. So what do these chapters have for us? They have a lot, uh, but one thing I'm going to focus on here. In 9.8, through 10.19 especially, we see that all people, no matter how immune they think they are or how powerful they think they are, all people are held accountable to God. His people thought that the promises to Abraham excused them to live however they wanted. 
excused them from needing to live for him. Assyria thought that they were powerful enough to ignore him. The truth is that he is the king and judge of all of us. He gives us our very breath and calls us to live for him with it. It is an individual choice that we all must make. We must live and choose to live in faith and love to live out his heart. In light of this, we all face the same question that Ahaz and later Hezekiah and the people of Judah were were asked by Isaiah, who will you trust? Who will you serve? That's the point of this whole section. And the point of this, we're going to keep going through the chapters, that's the question that's being asked again and again and again. Who are you going to trust? In their day, the question was, who are you going to trust? Assyria or the Lord? But throughout the rest of this book and throughout the rest of the Bible, we see that Assyria is simply simply the current model of the constant question. Will you trust what your eyes see and what the world says or what God has told you? If your ultimate hope and faith is in the things of this world, they will turn on you. They will be found empty. If your hope is in God's word and in his Messiah, then you will find peace and you'll spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you know our frame, that you know our fickle hearts, that you know that you need to ask us again and again and again, who are you going to trust? And that you prove yourself again and again and again to be trustworthy. And that you've given us even the end of the script to know that it is worth putting our trust in you, that nothing of this world can satisfy. I love that we just went through Ecclesiastes recently and thing after thing was taken down off of its pedestal to show us that you alone are worthy of our trust and of living for. And I pray that as we as we enter a new year, that we would live that out, that we would realize that each year We are given our breath to live for you. Amen.